This, the final episode of the last 12 Minutes of Mohicans podcast is brought to you by Via Vision Entertainment. You guys can follow Via Vision Entertainment on Facebook or on Twitter. But if you're in Australia, you know that they are responsible for the last of the Mohicans Ultimate Edition, which is out now on Blu-ray and DVD at JB Hi-Fi and includes the never-before-seen Director's Definitive Edition in Australia. You used to have to import this bad boy in and it is alongside the original theatrical version which we are using and adhering to uh, for the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans podcast there are plenty of bonus features including a commentary with Michael Mann and a making of doco which includes our guest in the sixth episode Mr. Dante Spinotti often wearing a red hat running around and uh, filming some epic battle scenes keep an eye out for that one but thank you so much to Via Vision now let's get to the show I'm Blake Howard. This is the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans. A Michael Mann film inspired podcast tackling everything about the 1992 film, The Last of the Mohicans, through a very specific lens. It's finale. And oh boy, is it an all timer! of a finale. Soaring score from Randy Edelman and Trevor Jones's adaptation of The Gale. Unbelievable performances by Daniel Day-Lewis, Madeline Stowe, Russell Means, Eric Schwieg, Jody May, Steve Waddington. Lensed so stunningly and staggeringly by the legendary Dante Spinotti and directed by Michael Mann. We have a war party of cinema's sharpest minds along for the ride, all culminating with the mountainous director himself, Mr. Mann. Welcome to the show. Good. How are you? I'm good, man. Uh, so now you're doing Mohican. Well, here's the thing. And, and he, he, here's the thing. I thought I would try and get to, a chance to talk to you again about Mohicans because I've been okay. so heat obsessed. And then what happened was I it occurred to me that it was quite perverse to go from speaking 130 hours in one of your great masterpieces and then only give maybe an hour conversation of you and I talking about Mohicans. So I just reached into my black book and gathered a, a wonderful crew of folks again, people like Manola Dargas, Matt Zola-Zeitz, um, Dante Spinotti, your frequent collaborator, Mark Olson from the LA Times, Bilga Ibiri, Walter Chaw, Joe Lynch, Chris Tapley. And, uh, and I said, look, if I was right. going to talk about Mohicans again, would you guys want to talk about specifically the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans, that final ending, the all-timer of a finale? Right. And everyone, because they're such a monstrous fan of your work and they were all fans of One Heat Minute so much, they obliged. And so 
this one hour conversation between you and I has now turned into a mini series, which has already started being released and people are really responding to it. So thank you so much for taking a little bit of time to talk to me again. Oh, thank you. First up, this project focuses on the finale of your incredible film, Last of the Mohicans, which in both the original theatrical cut and the director's definitive edition don't really differ that much whatsoever. I think it's kind of a, the perfect finale. But can you talk about, let's kicking it off, is Stephen Waddington's major Duncan Haywood and his incredible evolving performance and redemptive arc in the story because that kind of really his sacrifice his you know triple translation you know sort of triggers the end of the film right well there's a couple things about it you know one is there there's one thing i found fascinating was the um you know the the different kinds of uh, uh, systems of justice that are uh, that are present in in the collision of uh, the Native American uh, life and social experience, the, uh, the the plight of the colonials, and then also the British as uh, as, a, as a colonizing and an imperial power, and the the um, the uh, you know, the characters and what they want, what Hayward wants, and and and. The world as he sees it, uh, and Hawkeye, and Cora, and Alice, and Magua, all come, all come into this massive convergence in that in that scene. So it's at one and the same time both a um, uh, a, a culmination of their action from the beginning of the film converging, and then it also becomes. And the decision of Seichem, it becomes the, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the kind of detonator or detonating device that initiates this explosion, which is the last 12 minutes, which determines the fate of all of, of all of our characters. So, you know, if you talk about it for, 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 for a second, there's the, um, the, the, the colonials have a feeling of being betrayed. And there is a concept of British rule as tyranny. Yes. And there are free men within the universe. And uh, the notion of rebelling against tyranny is something that is personalized. It's not a concept you learn in higher education. This is personalized. It's the only way one can explain the way that that, uh, you know, from working people to landowners, the violence of, of, uh, of, of rebellion that became the revolution. And um, so there's that sense of justice. There's a second system operating, which is British common law. And uh, the, the real inherent value behind the British occupation, behind the British colonial presence, is that that it, it all, everything is property. The people are property, the colonials are property, not just if they're indentured servants, uh, the real estate is property. Yes. And the, but nevertheless, there is the, the kind of, um, you know, in the, um, something that's been described as kind of the post-Lockean social contract 
there is a promise that's made that is if the if the settlements are attacked, the colonials will be free to to to, to leave their homes, and yes. that's breached uh, arbitrarily. There's a third system operating, and this is at the heart of everything that's going to happen to mostly to our characters, which which is how dispute, conflict, dramatic conflict are are judged within. Um, with, within the Native American system. I say the Native American system because we don't really know anything about the Mohicans and everything that's in there, in the film, on the Mohicans, is really based on the Iroquois, yes. the six nations of the Iroquois. And and in that, it, it's really a tribal law is is um, is adjudicative. It's, it's about appeasing, appeasing as many of the plaintiffs as possible. That's exactly what the, what the sachem does, and that's that's the when I was writing it. That was the inspiration for that scene. You basically want to make everybody go home getting a little bit of justice and a little bit not, you know, not receiving it. Yes. And and so consequently, you know, Alice is, um, you know, Hawkeye. I mean, Alice is can. Uh, Condemned to live with Magua to make up for the loss of his family. Uh, Cora will be burnt at the stake, and Hawkeye is is uh, is left free. And at that moment, you know, Hayward's love for Cora manifests itself, and he substitutes himself for for her, and that's okay. That's so it's it's a, it's a whole alien system. That is about appeasing and adjudicative, and that's that's the spark that sends everything sends everything off. Uncas takes off to uh, to intercede and and, and save uh, Alice. Uh, Hayward dies. Hawkeye puts her puts Hayward out, out of his out of his misery, and uh, uh, Magua. Is, is pursued by Chingachgook and, and, and Hawkeye, um, and I wanted to uh, drive everything to this moment that comes right after that decision. From there to the end of the film, and I wanted it, I wanted it to have an experiential unity that um, that just uh, you know something you read in. in Reviews that are quoted, and um, you know, one piece or whatever. But wanted to really grab you and and have all the resolutions be be a kind of a, a cascade of actions that are all unified experientially, and and drive to uh, a kind of a thematic point, which is them standing there looking at the, their own future with the with the with the um, with an authentic sense of uh, here's life that's that's progressing, and here's life that's that uh, here's the real fact of human existence, and when what is and what is immediately in our future, which is that um, people will perish, life is perishable. Yes. Um, in this case, a whole ethnicity, a whole uh, tribal group is is ending, and then 
the, the immediate future is for Hawkeye and 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 uh, and Cora and people like him, meaning people who are settling on the frontier. Uh, and then at some po- moment in time, you know, their life, who they are, all that's going to change, and all that's going to be rolled over by an ever-evolving present. Uh, so that's the authentic perception that, that's there. I had a version of the film that was at least theatrically in which that was stated, and then I decided in the last version that that was a mistake, and it should just be you sense it. Yes. You sense where they're going. You sense what's in front of them. You sense their loss, and you sense their future. And in the future, they'll be together, but there's also going to be losses, loss in the future, too. And that is existence on a planet Earth. So that's why I took the dialogue to that effect out. But anyway, then after the uh, decision by the Sachem, when they drive forward, uh, and all these, the, the, the emotional conflict, Mod was, uh, I mean, Shigatsuka uh, seeking uh, revenge and justice for the death of Unkas, which he witnesses, um, the, the election of suicide by, by, um, by Alice, uh, witnessed by Cora, uh, you know, Hawkeye uh, pursuing his father figure, the final confrontation that he has with Magua. Magua registering something about uh, Alice's, I may have the name of the book, by the way, about Alice's, um, uh, in her electing uh, to kill herself, uh, there is that recall, if you like, of, of, of a, uh, of what that, of what, you know, of, of the emotional cost of it. There's a recall of, of something tragic. There's, there's human impulse within him, and he wants, he tries to save her. He tries to talk her back from the edge, and and she, you know, falls backwards off the cliff. It's a moment for Magua. The time we know where Magua's come from, so you know it all is. Uh, so it has a kind of what the kind of contrapuntal structure to it. Uh, I totally agree and I just wanted to expand on and jump off on Magua because the more that I revisit this film and I think the more since talking to people about this movie over and over again the more that Magua's story and and Wes Studi's incredible performance continues to resonate and particularly the uh, if we're talking about specifically the last 12 minutes one of the things that I find sort of deeply powerful and underscores your you know different uh uh tiered views of justice and, and, and law in the film and societal sort of structures of order is that Magua is sort of pleading to the Sashem for sort of more traditional, you know, a hard justice rather than, rather than diplomacy. Um, and in that, when the Sashem makes his decision in that moment, Magua, I've always found now watching it again and again, really sort of um, really poignant that Magua curses the Huron Sashem out in French rather than in Huron, that he decides to adopt even the colonial tongue to sort of curse him out for for this decision that is ultimately trying to appease people rather than sort of dominating as these colonial forces are. Um, but 
can we can I talk to you a little bit about Wes Studi and what's wonderful is that the phenomenal actor that he is actually is being honored with an honorary academy award I think uh anyone who right. you would ask is would say that this is an overdue uh course correction that he didn't get nominated and win for Magua 100% <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, no, I think his performance as Marvel was fantastic. You know, um, it was, it was, I mean, he is, how should I put it? You know, he's, those roles, when you are the, the, the films don't work, films are, drama is conflict, and, and, and the, the protagonist, what the protagonist wants, is, is critical, but as critical is the impediment. It is a dialectic, and the and he is the antithesis, and yet the antithesis has contained within it tremendous emotional, uh, you know, pain, and and and, and we, we empathize with him at the same time, um, at, at the same time that he commits acts of brutality that that appall us. We know where he's coming from, and I, there's also an irony about Magua, and that is that, um, you know, they, they say, as the station says, since the white man landed on the shores, the red man has asked himself, uh, you know, one question, one question only: what is the red man to do? And 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 Magua's answer is is actually astute and correct. Yes, you have to embrace this nascent capitalism. And and trade like the whites and be like the whites to survive. Um, does that make him a proponent of uh, casinos on tribal lands in upstate New York? <laughs> probably he probably would have the same division that's that's there right now among the Mohawks. Ironically, and you know one of one of the, the, the leading tribes of the Six Nations of the Iroquois between the traditionalists who oppose the gambling and the advocates of, of exploiting gambling as a way to pump some capital into, uh, you know, in, in, into, uh, into reservations. Yes. Uh, the same themes are expressed in, you know, 1750, in 250 years earlier, yes. in 1757 in the uh, tribunal. We talked about Wes and how wonderful he is, but I think it's also it underscores how great Wes is when how great Daniel Day Lewis is as your lead as Hawkeye, because right. they're both so terrific. They seem to elevate each other. It's like great, you know. You, you've done this as a great director yourself with great writers and great actors before. You seem to get this crew of wonderful, amazing people, and you did it with Heat together. And there's like this alchemy of people wanting to shine and complement one another to sort of elevate the entire picture. Listen, that's that's the ambition, you know, um, and 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 sometimes, sometimes the the um, it's not just the, the the pure artistic skill, but it's also where the who the people are and where they where they come from. Yes. Uh, you know, I mean, you have in 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 the late sixties, uh, middle sixties, the late sixties, uh, you know, along with. Uh, the real rock stars in the 60s were, aside from Che Guevara, if you're American, to me was, you know, the two leaders of the American Indian movement, which was, you know, Russell Means and Dennis Banks. And so, you know, it was kind of a wild idea because I don't know 
you know, I hadn't, I didn't know either man. I didn't know if either one of them could, could really act. And um, so they're both, they're both in the movie. If you take a look at, at images from Wounded Knee um, and see them as young men, you can see, you know, that's, that's, where, that's where the idea really came from. That I would see if Russell Means could play in God's book and find some way to get Dennis Banks in the film. And, you know, of course, I was able to do both. But, that, but going back to West Studi, that was a no-brainer. I mean, he was, yes. you know, he was so right to play Magua. Just, you know, Magua's, Magua's essence is, is etched in West Studi's face, you know? Yes. And so you're getting, and, and, and in contrast to that, you've got Daniel Day-Lewis, who is your guy from minute one as Hawkeye. Yeah, because Daniel brings himself to, I mean, first, first of all, to... to he isn't really even bicultural. He is he is culturally Iroquois. Yes. I say Iroquois because we don't, as I said before, we don't know anything about the Mohicans. And Mohicans with an M A, they're a completely different group altogether. Mm. Um, they're on the other side of the Housatonic River, and uh, are, are of a different language group. And the the uh, the uh, so he's somebody within a, who's raised within a culture. So he's got a white man's skin, but his heart and his head are completely uh, are come to us out of your culture. How he uh, relates to Cora, uh, those those looks have to do with courtship within the the whole matrix of the cultural of, of, of a, uh, the whole kind of anthropological matrix. In terms of cultural anthropology, of of um, the value system of the Iroquois, um, how properties pass down in a matrilineal way, which means you may, you will be closer to your mother's brother than to your father's brother. What courtship, um, divorce was fifty fifty property settlement. But what what courtship was also was something that was overt and and, and candid. Um, free love was accepted. In, uh, you know, in 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 courtship, so there's there's a kind of a very honest, uh, un un completely, you know, no coyness. There's no there's no salacious quality to it. There's no hidden agendas. It's just a completely frank. I like you, you yes. know, and that look. <laughs> he he he, uh, you know, he expresses the corpus. People have asked about that, and that's so if, if the electricity, the current of that romance is, is, is wholly overt and completely on screen from the first one of the first moments they get together. So, um, you know, so it, all, all of these are things that that's only somebody like Daniel Day Lewis can so totally incorporate. Because it's one thing for a great actor and bring him into um, being a character who is alive, let's say, or you can find either analogs of a fictitious character in real life, or it's a character who's based on someone in real life. Yes. And you could, as a director, you could, you, you could edit in the events and bring an actor into an event stream in, in pre-production when you're working together, building experiences that was going to deliver him by the time you're in rehearsals, Completely in a character, he truly is this person. Yes. 
It's a whole other thing to do it with something that happened 250 years before. And um, and yet there are we found ways to 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 open those doors uh, to uh, Daniel found ways to open these doors and 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 bring that to life. Some of which is in in a kind of oral history oral oral history accounts that were collected in the eight in the late 1870s by a Harvard historian. Uh, of people who had heard stories when they were children from their grandfathers, when their grandfathers and grandmothers were children, who had actually lived through the through the events of that summer of 1757, um, you know, and then you know piecing together other ways to become this, this this character. But Daniel, you know, was Hawkeye. He could live in the he could live in the forest, and the physical thing isn't you know feeds back into the attitudes, the mental uh, take of being Hawkeye, but Daniel, Daniel could do what Daniel Boone did. He could yes. live for four seasons by himself in the wilderness and hunt, track, keep himself warm, everything uh, on foot uh, you know, that he portrayed as doing. That, that brings into an actor I've always found being able to actually do his activities. It brings a profound sense of being an individual. Uh, and it's an authenticity that audiences sense. So we've talked about the performers. I have to get sort of a bit technical with you now. Trevor Jones um, uh, and um, Randy Edelman bring together the wonderful Gale. And from a technical perspective, I think the final ending, really beginning from the exchange of gestures between Eric Schwiegs Uncas and Russell Means as Chingachgook when he sort of signals to his father that he's going to go after Alice. Really from that moment, I think it's one of the most exquisite pieces of cinema in your entire, you know, series of really incredible films. Can you talk about like the constructing from a technical standpoint and an editing and directing standpoint, constructing this percussive and just relentless relentless ending that ends and culminates obviously with the two towering figures of Chingachgook right. and Magua. Can you talk talk us through your, your thought process there and, and your mindset? Yeah, everything was working towards this. And so when, in conceiving that, one thing I wanted is I wanted this sense of, of the, of the frontier. The front, where's the front, where's the frontier? The frontier is where we are, uh, uh juxtaposed, it's, it's that zone where where we are juxtaposes against where we aren't, and and what's to come, and it shifts. It's like a twilight zone that shifts in, 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 in from the from the moment this moment of the present into the future. So it has possibility. Uh, it's redolent with possibility, um, danger too, but also possibility. And so I wanted. Get the, the future that's ahead of them, that they, that the characters in this film are are are, uh, are in a state of anticipation that are struggling for, whether it's Magua or or Uncas or Hawkeye, all of them. I wanted that sense of the of the future of the future, which to me translates visually into elevation, being high, being on a you know, not being in a valley, but being on top of a cliff edge, 
you know, looking at the at, at the distant mountain ranges. So the setting of it was going to be that, and then I and then the climb to those to that elevation was was critical. Driving it all, I wanted a piece of music that would just take you in in in, in kind of a recycle with rounds in effect. And uh, I've always been drawn to Celtic music, and that was absolutely the choice. It was just a matter of finding finding what it was. And, uh, you know, Trevor did a great job. He was here for three months trying to find it, and everything struck out. Yes. <laughs> it, it wasn't. It, we, he didn't find it. It wasn't there. It wasn't happening. And then I was driving, and my wife called. My wife's name is Summer. She called and said, I just heard something on the radio you've had to listen to. I think it may be what you were looking for. And that was this contemporary Irish folk song called The Gale, right? Yes. And G-A-E-L. And um, it's like, God, I listened to it, and I was just like blown away. This is exactly it. And I had Trevor, who's brilliant, play the the harmony of this. He played a harmony. I said, great, that's our main theme, and then you'll use this as the love theme, and then we were off the races after that point. Yes. You know, it, it is quite brilliant adaptation of it. And then... When you want to get about technical details, there's something quite special about recording it with a full orchestra at the uh, uh, at, on the music recording stage of 20th Century Fox, which has been there since the birth of sound. And see, one almost wants to believe that all these great ways that you know that the sound of music has pushed the air <laughs> in that one particular stage that's impacted on the wooden walls. You know, it's really an old stage. And uh, so it's like a perfect place to do it. And then we we paid a lot of attention to the miking of all the instruments because I really wanted you to feel that the celli are instruments played by human beings that wanted you to hear the rosin on the strings of the bow against the strings, you know, hear all of the the real, uh, you know, all, acoustically hear all the, how analog everything and human it was, and uh, instruments that would have been played in the same period. And uh, so you'll think we'll mic very, very carefully to, to produce that. And I think audiences perceive all this, even though they don't know they're perceiving it, they nevertheless feel that, you know, this is not, elect- obviously it's not an electronic score. You know? No, and, and... But anyway, that was the... That was the uh, that's what moves me is is um, a piece of music has the power to move me in, in ways that that just transport me and become transcendent and take me into into a very deep and large scale imagining of uh, of of, of an entire fairly complex orchestral emotional reality. They they can music can take me there. And inversely, if I find the right piece of music, it can always bring me right back to what that emotional quotient exactly ought to be. And that's what I sought and uh, you know, found it in that, in that too. And then it was just a matter of really, you know, you, you know, you talked about in that Fox studio, the, the wood absorbing the sounds from all the way back when in The Sound of Music. I feel like you in this finale structure. That, 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 my quirky <laughs> senses. 
no, that, no, no. I, I have some super. I, I, I love, I love, <laughs> that, I love that superstition. I was just going to, I was just going to say that it seems to echo in the, even in the method, like your aesthetic method, like bringing together almost what essentially becomes like a silent, a, a mini silent film with this insanely transformative music that's underscoring it. But because we've been informed by this richly textured world, all these huge actions that are converging are just writ large. And so all these big emotions and huge canvases that you're using both in the setting and in the people, it just, the way that it percussively edits together is just incredible. Well, I know we spent this, it was well, it's planned ahead of time, um, the shots and how it's going to come together and then we shoot it and then you rewrite the plan in the editing room, uh, you know, working with, you know, uh, two quite um, brilliant directors, uh, brilliant, brilliant editors, uh, Artie Schmidt and, and Dub Honig, who's my nice. dear, dear friend who's done uh, many of your films. Yeah, many of your films. And, um, you know, I already won an Academy Award for Roger Rabbit, but I think, you know, it was, it was, um, I think Dove and I were laboring on, 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 you know, on the end of it. Laboring in what way? Like just in, in, in that crafting that perfection, just that the timing is, is that what you mean? Well, it's not so much being perfectionistic as, as being, as, as being persistent. Yes. Um, you know, you understanding though, this has immense value. And it has immense potential, and it has to be fucking perfect. It cannot be anything less. <laughs> yes. Uh, it will, because the difference between 98% and 100% in terms of audience reaction is huge. Yes. It doesn't sound like much, but it's huge. It's the difference between, wow, that's really something, and people being, you know, speechless because they've been so swept away by it. That's that last 2 or 3%. That's what it does. Well, uh, I know I don't have you for nearly as long this time around, but I think that might be a great cue to say whatever work that you did with Dove and Trevor and agonizing and putting the work in and building and redesigning, um, you most certainly hit that 100% because every single person, incredible creative mind and, and creator that I've spoken to about this film, much like I did with Heat, but specifically on Last of the Mohicans and this all-timer finale are utterly swept away by it and call it an all-timer and say that it resonates and just can't simply take their eyes off of it all this time later so um from from i hope i hope people seeing it on a screen because it however impactful it is it is something else altogether on a large screen well, uh, anyone who's listening to this in the United States, all those lovely theaters, you know, your new Beverly's in LA, etc. cetera, um, someone get a, uh, a, a, a throwback screening on, uh, for Michael Mann and anyone who's listening in Australia, I know some of the theaters out here, the beautiful Hayden Orpheum. Um, I think there might be a perfect, a perfect time, uh, to throw up, uh, either the theat theatrical version or the director's definitive edition of Last of the Mohicans on the big screen and, uh, and get a a throwback screening going so we can actually experience the immersive thing. But uh, Mr. Man, as always, um, it's been an, an immense pleasure talking to you and uh, and your work continues to, to move me. And despite your uh, being obsessed, probably on a clinical level with one of your uh, your more contemporary masterpieces, uh, your contemporary crime masterpiece, Heat, to be specific, um, this, this film and this ending 
sweeps me away every time. Great. Well, thank you so much, Blake. I really appreciate it. I've got to add, I really appreciate the smart questions. It's great having a dialogue with you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. This, the final episode of the last 12 Minutes of Mohicans was brought to you by Via Vision Entertainment. You can follow Via Vision on Twitter or you can like them on Facebook. They are, of course, the company that brought us the last of the Mohicans Ultimate Edition, which is out now on Blu-ray and DVD at JB Hi-Fi and includes the director's definitive cut, which is never before seen in this country and available on home entertainment, alongside the original theatrical version. And... It has a stack of bonus features. It has a commentary track with Mr. Michael Mann. It has a making of documentary with the incredible and absolutely wonderful Dante Spinotti, cinematographer extraordinaire, running around in a red hat. Spot the red hat if you can. And of course, if you've been listening to these, uh, this show in one this one heat minute production, you would most definitely need to add the last of the Mohicans Ultimate Edition to your essential collection. Thank you so much for Via Vision. This has been a one-eight-minute production.